0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger.
1: This is Dan Abuhal.
0: With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, June 30th, last day of June, 2019.
1: That's right. And at the end of a harrowing week in which uh, my wife, Tamsin Granger, abandoned me, and I was on my own, on my own, because, tell them your reason, you were away because... First of all, just let me say, is this
0: part of the nostalgia theme we're here getting, we're getting the that. throwback man cannot survive without his wife thing
1: I, well i first really of all, I, Dan, I, I did survive
0: i think the modern man is able to fend for
1: himself i thrived i was i was good all right all right but explain please, your
0: please please one would think that i wait on you hand oh, and foot
1: no that's not true
0: oops yes i do <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. Um,
1: you were away.
0: I was away. I was uh, down in Georgia visiting my mother, sure. hoping to celebrate her 94th birthday. Is it 94, Happy really? Birthday, 94. Ben. Yes. Wow. And uh, we had cake. We dined out. We had a little ladies' luncheon. We, we did uh, jigsaw puzzles much fun.
1: How did you tear tear yourself away? How did did you manage to leave? You know, I
0: flew. Mm. I flew out of Trenton Airport. Mm. I'm telling you, I travel in style.
1: (laughs) It is a little downscale, but it's convenient. Convenient, right? Right. Yeah, the most convenient. But uh, yeah, well, anyway, I'm glad you're back. Uh, Welcome back. And, uh, yeah, nostalgia, as you mentioned. I don't know why, but it struck me. Everything I'm reading this week is about nostalgia. And, of course, number one in the hearts and minds of many is uh, the New York Metropolitan Baseball team, the Mets. The Mets who are unspeakably bad. The Mets who could barely draw flies. The Mets whose, whose fans have given up on them and, for very good reason, very early in the season, were able to draw a capacity crowd yesterday. How did they do that, you ask? They did that by celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1969 world champion Met baseball team. The good old days. Mm. And that's what brought people up. When men were men. Well, I don't know about men, but the Mets uh, were a a classic worst to first. They had spent their entire existence from 1962 up until 1969 as a cellar-dwelling team, and one would have thought prospects were low entering the 1969 season. But they had Tom Terrific, namely Tom Seaver, heading the pitching staff and a few other luminaries, Including Nolan Ryan, both Seaver and Ryan ultimately would be in the Hall of Fame, and a couple of pretty good ballplayers besides. None great, none great, but pretty good. So um,
0: you're saying that that's why the Mets are back in the cellar today because they're nostalgic no, for those old no, cellar dwelling days? No, no, days? no, there's
1: no reason why they're back in the cellar today. But, but, but it is instructive that so many people would come out with a full-throated response to the Mets based on this team 50 years ago, who who they see in an idealized light. And uh, these guys can basically do no wrong. They weren't extraordinary ballplayers, but it was a great story. And they are celebrated and continue to be celebrated 50 years later. 50 years later is a long time. Uh, It was a huge deal in New York at the time in 1969, a bigger deal than I can think of anything else happening in New York City uh, in the last 50, 60 years, honestly. A uh, big parade and everything. I mean, look, when John Glenn went down the Canyon of Heroes, having circled the globe, the first uh, astronaut to orbit the globe, three times, if I recall correctly, it was a pretty good parade. But when the Mets won in 1969, that was a parade.
0: And yet, little Tammy Granger, blissfully <laughs> unaware that there was even a World Series that year. Listen,
1: I, I don't want to cast any stones, but little Tammy Granger was in her own little world, I think. Not really on top of things. But in any event,
0: so that... Uh, that was, I know you enjoyed hearing from Cleon Jones.
1: Cleon Jones, the leading hitter at the time. And, you know, a lot of these fellows were overshadowed at the time by Tom Seaver, who was the leader of the team both on the field and, frankly, in the clubhouse, dealing with the press. He was the voice of the team. And, and uh, sadly, uh, Seaver is suffering from dementia now. He was not able to attend the ceremonies. But you hear from some other folks. Of course, many have passed away. But you have 10 or 12 of the core players. And they're speaking out in a way they... Uh, they didn't always in the past. Well, then.
0: telling anecdotes uh, you haven't heard before. So, telling but, great I stories. I know you enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. I mean, even I, I just picked up something. Uh, it, it was funny. They, they had the, the broadcast team of, uh, of Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez or from a different World Series winning team in 1986. But they were saying they were in tears watching this. They were mm-hmm. in tears. And they're saying they don't even understand why they're reacting this way. They have no link. They, they, they didn't follow. They're too young. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the 1969 Mets, except they're the only other championship team, so they feel some kind of link. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they had some quote from Ron Sabota, who was a player then, and they interviewed him. Sabota is a, a sportscaster in New Orleans. And he said, You know, I live in New Orleans, it's very nice. They have parades all the time, but they're Mardi Gras, and I'm not in that one. The one I was in was the one in New York. And what I remember was that just around the time we won, Fred Chiro was the coach of the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team. He said to them famously before they played the seventh game, win this game, guys, and you will walk forward together forever. And that's what I told the guys. And we won. So it was a big deal. Uh, so nostalgia is uh, powerful, but it, it also manifests itself well in a lot of very odd ways, uh, commercial ways that are hard to figure. And I pointed out to you this restaurant review that I just saw this week, which is very much about the power of nostalgia and uh, with a different slant. Right.
0: T-A-K Room. Mm -hmm. The uh, new fancy schmancy restaurant. (laughs) Fancy schmancy. Fancy schmancy restaurant in um, Hudson Yards uh, opened by Thomas Keller. Thomas Keller of French Laundry. Renown and uh, other fabulous restaurants all over the place. Um, and uh, so, you know, here we go with uh, this place. Um, the headline, I guess, in the uh, New York Times review was Thomas Keller brings country club cuisine to New York City.
1: Yeah, Which is not positive, and the the feel of the review in the first three paragraphs explicitly was not positive, and I thought the review was going to be a pan, and then I looked at the end and I saw two stars, and I said, I don't know where this is going, and it was weird. Well,
0: and I saw another review had a headline or a discussion of the decor and it said it looks like a millionaire's hangout in an old New Yorker cartoon. Right. And uh, you get the feeling that's the aspiration here. I bet it is. I trying to kind of create that uh, um, back in the day, three martini lunch uh, But but what's
1: confounding is, and I guess the reviewer is Pete Wells, on the one hand he's objecting to this throwback uh, approach. And which he finds really off putting, maybe more so than I can understand. And, and on the other hand, he's conceding that a lot of the food is super. Yes. Although,
0: uh, he does say that, uh, it's, uh, the effort is so determined to be timeless that it seems clueless. Well, yeah, but the okay. cl- but, but and uh, I, they're but, you know it's the food of the three martini lunch, the steakhouse, uh, the Twenty One Club, Dolversol, iceberg <laughs> lettuce, prime rib, oysters, Rockefeller. Yes, salt. yeah.
1: But my point is when he when he homes but in, he says yeah. What? This is
0: this is the quote you want. Yeah. It's the most refined meticulous country cub food you've ever oh, no, had. No, no,
1: that's not even the quote I want. But fine, meticulous doesn't capture it. He, there are some things in the review when he talks about the chocolate cake, when he talks about the uh, the homemade potato chips or whatever, he's just saying this stuff is fabulous. Am I wrong about
0: well, that? Well, at a certain point he says, here comes a French onion dip mm-hmm. surrounded by newly fried potato chips that are dark without a hint of charring. Okay, this is, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to say tack room, in one extremely crunchy, lusciously creamy bite, an hors d'oeuvre from the age of naugahyde and polyester, transformed into something so good and pure it's beyond reproach.
1: Right. Then right. he goes on
0: to say the Parker House Rolls. Got that? Parker House Rolls rolls are gravity-defying orbs served with soft cultured butter that in the evening's best magic trick rises from a custom-made dish in six identical ridged curls like shrimp performing a buzzly berkeley routine right what does he say about the chocolate cake i'm not even going to read that it's not as exciting as you remember okay okay. but he's uh, going crazy uh, about this stuff yeah. Well,
1: see, see, there are two things going on here. First of all, he it, I don't know. I would fault the review because it's supposed to be the quality of the food, and he can't go over the politics of it. But but beyond that, he's on to something when he's, when he's when he's really identifying that they're presenting an idealized version of the past, that the menu is droopy and unimaginative and unexciting because those foods were unimaginative and unexciting, but they're being presented in a way That's better than the past. That's why it's an idealized version of the past. Right. Well, the Carbone. It's not the real past. The
0: restaurant Carbone. uh, Those guys were doing that with uh, uh, Red Sauce Italian. Red Sauce American Italian food a few years ago. And then, in fact, uh, same group uh, reworking uh, the Four Seasons, um, the pool, room, and the grill. Right. um, Doing all classic stuff but uh, taking it up a notch. Right, know? Because but
1: the marketing angle is that people have in their heads this idealized view of the good old days, and it was great, wasn't that great, and now they get to go back to it, and it is great, even though the good old days weren't so great, but it, it, it kind of restores in an odd confusing way Well, they
0: get to participate in it they're not going back to it they were never there well that was a long long time ago and it was other millionaires but now you can sort of reenact the one percent days of your uh but you know i mean it is a little crazy who you know uh this uh you know recreating things like french onion dip well, well, well I I mean, listen to please. this
1: this is the same thing this is cars right two articles this week one in the journal one in the times the one in the times is how says young buyers redefine vintage and you're familiar with classic car collectors having cars that are 80 90 years old they say no no the cars are now they're popular the 1980s models the 1990s models why is that here's the quote um They say this is from this fellow uh, who follows the so-called new generation of car restoring, a fellow named Hemmings. He says that to some of us, these cars in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s seem like used cars, while to others, they're the stuff childhood dreams were made of. That's exactly what you're talking about. These these guys didn't have these cars, and now they have the money, and now they're going to get those cars from the 90s and restore them, and restore them to something better than they ever were.
0: I guess, really, the 66 Dodge Dart never hit any of these uh, nostalgia no, waves. No, no, no.
1: But the, you know what these are? These are often SUVs. They have a, a fellow here with has a Land Rover Defender, and you'll, you'll respond to this because your brother did something like this. He bought it just so he could restore it with his son, so they could have a father-son experience restoring cars. Right. And his, his son has a... Uh, forward-looking view of the situation. When asked about it, he says, well, my girlfriend likes it. So there you go. That's a reason to do it. But the, the Wall Street Journal article really does the Times one better. Uh, it's about uh, they call it uh, the $300,000 Nostalgia Trip. And it's an article um, by Dan Neal. And, uh, oh, yes,
0: your man crush. Yes. Your favorite writer.
1: Yes. uh, But it's picking up on the same theme. Uh, Here's the quote. There's a big difference between the romantic mind's eye image of your dream car and the archaic reality. So what's the business here? The business is that these folks are taking these cars, the ones we're talking about, the SUVs in the 1990s, and restoring them with engines and other parts that are like steroid, uh, steroid versions of what they had before. So here's the way Neil describes it. Here comes the Thunder, an all-American 6.2-liter, 430-horsepower aluminum V8, hooked to a GM gas transmission Atlas II transfer case and Dana 6 rear Dana 44 front axles with optional locking differentials and Icon spec Brembo brakes, sitting athwart a custom (laughs) <laughs> coil over suspension Fox racing dampers and IBAC coils attached to a custom frame the Icon FJ has wheel articulation of 12 inches take it from a car person Earthlings it's built uh, and the way he sums it up is this way he says these are more than SUVs more than vintage off-roaders these are fantasy utility vehicles towering visigoths a hundred times better and better than ever they were in real life that's right folks FJ U.V.s, so there you go. Well, they
0: also mentioned that uh, some of them they have reworked as into being electric.
1: That's true too. Cars. Yes.
0: But these sound like basically like those old hot rods that you used to see like Model Ts souped up. Yeah, it does uh, sound with a like big that. Engine. It yeah. does sound
1: like that. But yeah. it and it's also made to but very high uh, all high specs like Mercedes Benz specs all the way around. When they have a convertible, they use Mercedes Benz covers, uh, Mercedes Benz covers. And that's why they cost a fortune. But it's the same idea. The same idea. So there's a, and there's an article I was reading, not an article, a book I read recently, um, by a fellow named Yuval Levin, uh, called The Fractured Republic. And it's, uh, it's about, uh, really about, uh, political economy and, and politics, generally speaking, uh, what's going on in the country and other countries and things like that. But one of the things he identifies as one of the most force, uh, Important forces in politics is nostalgia. That you have a lot of folks, um, I'll put it, it couldn't be in both parties, really, advocating for a past that they vaguely recall. Wasn't, weren't things great in the 50s? Weren't things great in the early 60s? Everybody had jobs. Everybody their neighbors. Everybody, you know, loved America. Uh, there was no strife, whatever. That, that actually, that reality never occurred. It never existed. And yet it drives policy because people The imagined reality. The imagined reality drives policy. Yeah. People say, Why can't we return to that? Let's get rid of these new things and go back to that. Well and, and that it, never does existed. Does that include
0: like the really ancient, like the you know, let's get back to the you know, the glory days of the founding fathers and things some, like that, sometimes, is that too some, distant?
1: No, sometimes that does. Sometimes it does. When people in a sense when people talk about the constitution, it is what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Part of it is people read the constitution, part of it is a it is nostalgic vision, a fantasy of what the Constitution is and the magic associated with it. So it's not entirely wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nostalgia is powerful, and frankly, it's not entirely positive, right? Because it's misleading. It gives you less than a clear-eyed view of what you're actually dealing with. Right.
0: Well, uh, yeah. The The problem is that it's uh, nostalgia for something, as you said, that didn't exist. Uh, So that's tricky. Okay, so... You kind of uh, walked all over my. Um, oh, I forgot. Yes, no, this, yes. this
1: is, but this is right in there. This is right this in is, there. This is
0: in there. An article by Michelle Slatala in the Wall Street Journal. Why such a reaction to my beautiful laundry line? This is, you know, this is stupidity. Yeah, this I really this, stupidity. well, this is dumb. Okay, I have always had a laundry line. Yeah. Um, and I do, uh, I don't dry everything outdoors. Uh, but uh, I do dry things on the line and uh, you know uh, I don't find it a big deal right. although in some places you're not allowed to have to put out your laundry in your yard well but it's her- the uh, homeowners associations have rules against it but, or whatever but, 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 and uh, it's considered an embarrassment now what this woman does right Okay, and she's just being—I don't know. Uh, she's just being a provocateur. Right. She puts her laundry line in the front yard. Yeah, that's okay? that's what's tricky. No about one it.
1: does right. that. Right.
0: Who does that? Right. And she pretends you're only doing that if you're trying to, uh, you know, antagonize people or make a point, right, right. not because you're trying to dry right. your laundry in a um, efficient, economical. And uh, you know what do you call it uh, environmentally uh, safe way? Right. Uh, so that pisses me off uh, that she's just doing that to make her point. And what does she do? She goes out there in the front yard, hangs her husband's underwear right. on the line, and waits for reaction. But, but you know, here, here's
1: her excuse for that. Okay. First of all. The reason the article is silly is she makes it seem as if the issue is whether you should hang yourself in the line when the issue is should you hang it in your front yard versus your backyard. And she's got a big backyard. But secondly, she does hark back in a nostalgic way to years ago when everybody got to know their neighbors because their lines were very close together and they were right on top of each other and they would talk. While well, they she's hung talking about those
0: old New York pictures of the right, tenements right. where you, you know, had to pull the lines across, exactly right. uh, you know, between the alleys. And you had and to so cooperate forth. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, she pretends yeah. to be and recreating that. And the lines beautiful with right. the, you know, right. the sheets floating right. in the right. air? The boxers so, right. in the Fine. freeze right? Yeah. 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 I mean, they can be beautiful. I, I, I love a laundry line, but, uh, you know, everyone she talks to and she says, my neighbors haven't mentioned it. And the, they say, well, you have very polite yeah. neighbors, which is probably true. Yeah. We're all civilized, right. you know, and you all know she's doing it to uh, get a rise out of you. So you're not going to comment. But the second question, everyone says, you don't have, you
1: know, a backyard. you don't have a backyard. And of course, of course it turns out she, of course she does have a backyard.
0: And so she puts up a new line in the backyard. Her husband promptly jogs out with her underwear, right. hangs it on the line, and she has to admit she's glad her neighbors couldn't see it yeah
1: all right well good 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 good. so at any event you had uh, a story about a road trip which i kind of skimmed over and uh well
0: talk about nostalgia yeah i mean this is an article by jeff gwynn who of course cleverly has written a book the vagabonds the story of henry ford and thomas edison's 10-year road trip and uh, it's got some charming pictures of uh, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, um, uh, who else? Harvey uh, fire Firestone. Stuff. Yeah, the tire guy. And uh, naturalist and author John Burroughs. Now, uh, the Model T, the economical Model T comes out in 1908. And, uh, you know, it's it's great. People are buying them. Of course, there aren't that many roads. Uh, And a lot of infrastructure has to come along to really make this all work. And one of the things that helps that is that starting in 1914, Henry Ford organizes road trips with his buddies, uh, the aforementioned, and uh, they set off and it's all very romantic uh, you know, not a razor in the party. No one's going to shave. Uh, they're just uh, steer by the sun and the compass only, just on a whim, head out together. And uh, often dining on fresh fish, they caught themselves with a bent hook and a birch limb rod which turns out to be well i mean the and and all these trips and these trips happen over the course of about 10 years yeah. and they are filmed there's a film crew going along with them, uh, hired by Henry Ford, and uh, their adventures appear in uh, you know, the newsreels uh, at the movie theaters, etc. And people are thrilled because these are gods, mm-hmm. right? Thomas Edison, Henry Ford inventing these great things, making life so much uh, more wonderful and exciting in the 20th century. So they're anxious to see what these guys are up to. And sure enough, uh, within uh, a couple of years, everybody wants to go on these road trips. So here's the funny thing. As you said, it it was all, again, a fantasy. Right. It was a fantasy. They had a huge staff. Okay, going along, cooking the food, bringing food along in a refrigerated truck and providing them with freshly ironed uh, linens and clothing every morning. Um, Also, the guys themselves, they weren't traveling along in the Model T like the average Joe. They were traveling in spacious Packards and Lincolns driven by uniformed chauffeurs. (laughs) So it was all kind of a uh, fantasy, but it does the trick. In about 1920, they say there were about 10 million um, owners of cars at that point. And at least half of them apparently went out on road trips. And of course, you just do it when it came time to spend the night, uh, you just pull over and park in somebody's field. Within two years later, there are six thousand auto camps uh where people can have more conveniences including one in denver that could hold two thousand cars and tents and as a result of all this road trip travel and people setting off for longer distances than just running down to the store or whatever um Gas stations start to crop up in the middle of nowhere. Also cafes, so that you don't have to depend on your bent pin and uh, limb, what what was that, that, and rod to be (laughs) providing your own dinner. So, I mean, this sounds like fun. You know, at at a certain point, uh, these um, road trips, uh, uh, the uh, publicized versions kind of dwindle in their allure. But uh, before that stops, he actually ends up uh, getting some uh, presidents to go on trips with him. Right. Really? Et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So it might be a fun uh, read. Yeah. Also, Jeff Gwynn, The Vagabonds. All
1: right. All right. And uh, museum, you have museum... A lot of museums. I'm
0: getting exhausted here. Yeah, Uh, I'll help you out. I do all the work in this family. I'll jump in with museums. Oh, yeah, right, right. Well, you um, actually gave me a little blurb about one thing that might be fun to do this summer is go to Greenwood Cemetery. Mm. It's always fun to go to the cemetery. Um, And uh, it's starting in the 1830s when they actually have purpose-built cemeteries. And Greenwood is a fantastic one in Brooklyn, New York. Fantastic monuments. It's a great, huge place to wander around. And uh, you can go uh, to their Twilight Tour, which starts at 7.30 and ends at 9.30. And, and it all kinds of great stories about the secret life of Leonard Bernstein, the shady dealings of Boss Tweed.
1: The secret life of Leonard
0: Bernstein? Yeah, I wonder what that is. So it sounds like it's a little more about the people than the actual monuments, but uh, the monuments are worth a look as right. well. So go to the cemetery. Yeah. Have okay. some fun.
1: I also was onto the the Caravaggio thing that you're going to talk about.
0: It's not Caravaggio. No, what
1: what is it? What is it? <laughs> It's, Caravaggio. it's uh, Caravaggio. Caravaggio. Caravaggio is very close. Yeah. Well,
0: there was a, a big picture of uh, Caravaggio. It, well, an alleged Caravaggio. I, I'm, it lo- I'm betting that's real. in an attic in France. I will say. France. I've looked
1: at the photograph. It looks real to me. Okay.
0: Good. Good to know. Yeah. Um, and it uh, was found in uh, an attic in France in 2014, and it is a painting of Judith, uh, uh,
1: the Jewish little, widow. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um so, somebody's getting killing a, 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 their throats. Yeah, that's the Assyrian general yeah. so that she can save her people mm-hmm. with her elderly uh female servant uh, cheering her on. Yeah, um, you know, I've never really liked it. Uh, the thing about Caravaggio is it would seem to me to take a lot of strength to cut somebody's head off. Oh, it's, and uh mm-hmm. Caravaggio's judiths never seem up to the task. Nonetheless, um, more knowledgeable experts than myself have decided this could indeed be a real Caravaggio, which would make it quite valuable. Everybody loves Caravaggio at the minute, tenebrism and all that. Um, And so it was going up for auction. But before it could be auctioned, and there were estimates that it might go for as much as $110 um, a hundred um, and ten million dollars. A hedge fund manager guy, Jay Tomlinson Hill, swoops in huh? and buys it. We don't know the price, but the um, the minimum bid. Was supposed to be around thirty-four yeah, million. Yeah, I, I, I thought I read
1: somewhere they thought he paid forty million for it, but whatever. Which is
0: perhaps a bargain. He's on the board at the Met, yeah. so he has connections. So he must uh, have reason to believe it's real. Hmm. He's on a lot of boards. He's a big shot.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, uh,
0: but got... uh, hopefully he'll loan it to right. the Met and My other feeling, museums. If it's uh, not, a... so we can look for ourselves and see what Judith is. Up to
1: my feeling is if it's not a Caravaggio, it's a Caravaggio, which is close enough.
0: Well, your know, Caravaggio had a lot of imitators, oh, and right? followers. Mm. So, including my own personal favorite Artemisia Gentileschi. Mm. But more about her mm. another time. Good. Anyway, also going on in New York, there's a um, Maurice Sendak
1: show. Yeah, I'll tell you right off the bat, I'm not a big Maurice Sendak guy. That might surprise you. At but the Morgan <laughs> Library. But go ahead. Don't let me stop you.
0: Okay. Um, anyway, it's a, It's actually It's called The Drawing the Curtain. Maurice Sendak's designs for opera and ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently he... Uh, um, well, this is what he says. 50 is a good time to either change careers or have a nervous breakdown. The new midlife career he took in the late 70s was as a designer... For music theater. Mm -hmm. And so it has uh, sketches, dioramas, etc., for various stage sets he did, for his own Where the Wild Things Are, um, for Mozart's Magic Flute. uh, for the Cunning Little Vixen and some other stuff. So that might be fun Is it Always fun to go to the Morgan Library well, I know in you, the 30s. You, you like the Morgan, I know. I do, I do a... like the Morgan. It's a fun building, and uh, it has some little smidges. They, 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 of some charge, original charge, library. they charge
1: money to get into the Morgan, or not?
0: They absolutely do. Okay. Well, worth it. All right. <laughs> and uh, but um, another thing to do if you're not into Sendak um, is uh, go see the Batman. Uh, comics illustrations at the Society of Illustrators. Now, that's not far from you. That's on East 63rd Street. So you could toddle over there and they have uh, 80 years of um, illustrations from Batman (laughs) comics, including one of the very first covers, the original art for one of the early covers, number 11, 1942, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, sold like 10 years ago, for about $200,000. But anyway, that uh, that might be fun. Uh, illustrations are always fun to look at. There's also a new museum in town, the Poster House. This is down in Chelsea on West 23rd Street. And it's just opening, so they don't have all their stuff yet, but they are having an exhibition of Alphonse Mucha posters. You remember the fabulous uh, Sarah Barnhart um, poster, mm-hmm. and he really he kind of comes alive, makes his mark, uh, uh, becomes famous by uh, doing her.
1: Um, That's the one posters. they have. They have the Hamlet poster in there, I, think.
0: I don't know if they have Hamlet. Um, I can see uh, Medea, Tosca. Yeah,
1: no, um, I, I, I think I saw Hamlet in the article, but yeah, and
0: and you know the famous uh, Job, uh, the cigarette advertisements. A lot of his stuff was to, you know, really um, brought uh, miscellaneous products into a very seductive and delightful renown. And uh, then, of course, you remember who one of the great collectors of Alphonse Mucha posters is.
1: Yes, Ivan Lendl.
0: The tennis player.
1: Yes, the tennis player. The great tennis champion. The Czech tennis champion uh, of some years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so
0: lots to do in New York if you're stuck there and can't get to the beach.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll you know, look, we're looking uh, straight at the uh, July 4th holiday coming up. So I'm going say having a four-day weekend. Uh, so the, uh, the last article I had, I think it's the last article, was uh, something which, uh, you know, from the headline, I wasn't that excited, but as I read it, uh, you know, my, uh, my interest increased. Which career is best for you? The clues lie in your college sport. The traits that made athletes successful on the field can indicate the jobs for which they'd be best suited.
0: So this must be all about women's ice hockey. I thought it'd is be about that, is that the allure?
1: I thought it'd be about crew, honestly. But then, and you read it, and you're reading, and they say they go on in the same, you know, same way. Some jobs have a reputation for drawing athletes of this type or that type. And then immediately it says, um, after saying as recent graduates hit the job market, traits that made them successful as athletes can point to promising career paths, it says, quote, water polo players. The first sport they mentioned, water polo players, for instance, may thrive in tech marketing because both environments prize fast-moving teamwork. Then they take a little divergence. They contrast that with wrestlers. Who compete as individuals and aren't necessarily the greatest teammates in the world. They talk about the precision, precision required in sports like baseball and diving, which they say. What do wrestlers? What si- are wrestlers supposed to do? Uh, th- 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 wrestlers used to. Th- 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 may make great solo focused salesmen. Okay. That's lonely. All right. And, and the pre- and it- precision required to succeed in sports like baseball and diving can help those athletes succeed at accounting. Okay. Accounting. <laughs> Yes, if you're a successful driver, you might be an accountant. But then, then the article immediately... you think
0: Cespedes is going to do that next? Uh, if this whole baseball thing? I continues think not to work if out. If his ankle
1: heals. So then they, have, they immediately pivot back to water polo players. And the article turns out to be primarily about water polo players. They're talking with a guy who's the chief marketing officer of a company called Nextiva, a business telecom provider based in Scottsdale. He says, look, I love hiring water polo players. This is a quote. I won't discriminate against a golfer or a sprinter, but I find that the more collaborative the sport, the better fit they'll be in a marketing team. And then he goes on to talk about his actual experiences. Uh, he hired an Arizona State water polo player without thinking much about it. The guy was fantastic. He ended up bringing on the whole team uh, from Arizona State.
0: Well, not quite the whole team.
1: The whole team. uh,
0: A lot of them. um, (laughs) Including
1: the mascot, if I recall correctly.
0: In water polo, you won't succeed if you hold the ball, he says. They're always passing, and there's a flow to the game which translates to the flow of work. You can't get anything done on your own in marketing either. Well, you know, I have seen water polo games where there was not... A lot of, but those uh, guys—they're they're
1: terrible at, <laughs> at, at marketing. Look, we all—you mention this because we happen to be very close to a lot of uh, very prominent water polo players and, and prominent uh, tech salesmen. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, look, I, this is a shout out to you guys. You know who you are. I won't mention names.
0: I think we should have done research about the um, author here. It smells like a water polo, a former water polo player to me.
1: Uh, maybe, maybe no, I'm, I'm, Hillary Potkowitz. So I'll look her up. But the point is, uh, as I've always suspected, the secret to success later on, particularly in tech marketing, is water polo. So you guys know you are, and, <laughs> and uh, take the lead from that. Uh, so until then, uh, next week again, short week this week, and then there's July Fourth right. weekend.
0: Oh, that's true.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, time yeah. to start grilling those dogs. <laughs> we'll get ready. We'll stock up. Uh, but, All right, so this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Ampuhoff.
0: And we'll be back again with Tamson and Dan. Read the paper next week.
1: Thanks.